you know, with all of its power and potential, money is a little bit like plutonium. Money is like plutonium. And the thing about plutonium is that when it's harnessed for good, it's filled with staggering possibilities. I mean, plutonium is absolutely incredible. I don't know if you know anything about it, but it can give power to a city of millions. One kilogram of plutonium can produce eight million hours of electricity. NASA uses plutonium in every single one of its missions to space. You see, when used correctly and used for good, plutonium has the power to influence the shifting of entire civilizations, you understand. But abuse it, misuse it, and get it into the wrong hands, and it can end a civilization. Just one millionth of a gram of plutonium will kill a human being if it enters the lungs. One millionth of a gram. One pound of plutonium can kill millions of people. One kilogram, that's two pounds of plutonium, should it explode, is the equivalent of 21,000, not pounds, tons of TNT. And you see, money is a little bit like plutonium. It's not inherently evil, by no means, but it is inherently lethal. And like plutonium, you must stand in awe of the power that it possesses. And like plutonium, you should never, ever, ever treat it like a plaything. And actually, here's the thing about money that makes it more dangerous than plutonium, is that money is the one element in the world, get this, that can destroy you even when you don't have any. Just thinking about money in the wrong way. Just desiring to be wealthy, Paul says. Whether you actually get wealthy or not actually has the power to unleash absolute devastation upon your life. That's what we're dealing with here. And yet, on the other hand, the possibilities of what money can be used to accomplish in the world simply boggle the mind. Money can be leveraged for the Great Commission. Money can be used to reach the nations, and it should. Get this, money even has the potential, depending on how you use it, to obtain eternal treasure and reward in the life to come that can never be dwindled or depleted. In other words, how you handle the plutonium of wealth in this life can produce eternal riches and reward in the next. Does that sound shocking to you? Does that seem foreign and strange to the Bible to you? Because it's neither foreign nor is it strange. It is everywhere in the Bible and is the very thing that the Apostle Paul says in our text this morning, namely that what we do with money, God's money in life, echoes into eternity. That it's not only a risk. It's not only a threat and danger to the soul. But when used correctly, money actually becomes an instrument of love for other people. And not only that, but if we use it right, it gains and obtains treasure in the life to come. And yet, having said that, plutonium never stops being plutonium. Money never stops being money, which means, which means it never loses its power to corrupt and ruin and devastate and destroy 
which also means we need someone to come alongside us and disciple us, to teach us how to use it, and, and not just to use it, but to invest it, to even maximize what God designed it to do in the world, in his plan, for the glory of his son. And this morning, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to do. He's going to be our financial advisor, our investment banker. He's going to give us a lesson on kingdom economics Eternal investment, treasure in heaven, saving for eternity, and how to avoid crashing our lives on the jagged rocks of coveting and greed. Because as your shepherd, that's exactly what I want for you. That you would see that everything you own is on loan from the throne, and that you would take the money and possessions God has given, and that what you do, what you would do with it, is invest it. Not in the stock market necessarily, but in the kingdom market. That you would increase your equity, your assets, your capital, your savings, and your gain. Not for this life necessarily, but definitely, definitely for the life to come. That's kingdom economics. And this morning we come to our last sermon in this little series over finances, money, riches, and greed. And just, just so you know, this series is not going to culminate in some obligatory offering at the end. There's no surprise building fund for you to donate to when this thing is over. Offering plates are not going to be passed around when the sermon is finished. In other words, what this, what this is, what that means is that there, there's no catch here. This isn't some giant way to manipulate you. And yet, if I'm being honest, what I, I will say that there is a string attached, and only one. And the string is, I want this series to help unleash the greatest movement of cheerful, giving, treasure-seeking, eternity-investing people this church has ever seen in its history, as we learn together to be a people who live by kingdom economics. Here we go. This morning, I want you to see from our text a three-part strategy, a three-part strategy to guard against greed on the one hand and to liberate a life of radical generosity on the other. That's where we're going. A three-part strategy to guard against greed and to liberate a life of radical generosity. That's where we're headed. Part one of the strategy is this. Number one, you must heed the logic about the love of money. You must heed the logic about the love of money because it is very logical, should I say it is illogical, to be greedy and discontent. As you're about to see what Paul says here, wanting to get rich and the love of money literally is about as insane and irrational as a human being can possibly get. And yet there's a couple things you need to know about this letter and what Paul's doing here before we proceed. See, one of the things you have to know is that Timothy was a pastor kind of an interim pastor that Paul himself trained and discipled and sent to this church this, to revitalize this church in Ephesus that, did, to be totally honest, had spun completely out of control. This is probably Timothy's first rodeo as a young pastor, and what he walked into was a situation that was nothing short of brutal and challenging. There was division, false teachers, weak elders, passive men, overbearing women who were trying to take control and run the church. And like any pastor, Timothy felt like this was way above his pay grade to the degree that he may have even been tempted to quit 
Not just quit the church, but quit the ministry altogether. So Paul writes this profoundly doctrinal, heart-searching, helpful letter to his young protege to help him lead and shepherd and preach the word of God in in the face of unrelenting pressure and challenge and adversity, which was caused in part by some hooligan false teachers who had infiltrated the church. And like all false teachers, they were just in it for the cash. Like the prosperity preachers of today, these con men crept into the church and they caused real confusion about money and riches and wealth And one of the things they claimed, verse 5, look what it says. One of the things they claimed is that godliness is a means of gain, they said. In other words, there was money to be made in looking religious. In other words, these wolves and grandma's clothing marketed themselves as these pious, motivational, speaker-type guys who sold spiritual secrets for cash. For just $49.99, I can sell you the secret to overcoming lust or pride or anger, just like I have done. Which is exactly why Paul says in verse 6, agreed. Agreed, he says. Godliness with contentment is A great means of gain, he says. Do you see what Paul's doing here? The con men pretended to be godly for the sake of gaining money. Paul argues that godliness is actually a great means of gain. In fact, what Paul actually argues, look what he says. What he actually argues is that authentic godliness, which is always accompanied by contentment, is actually greater gain, greater profit, greater pleasure than if you lived for money and wealth and riches. That's what he just said. The question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that being godly, that godliness is greater gain than gaining gold? That it pays, as it were, to be godly? Do you believe Paul's claim here that pursuing a life of godliness has more profit, more pleasure, more joy, more satisfaction than living for riches and greed and money and wealth? That's exactly what he says. And you see what this does, of course, is raise the question, right? If that's true, then we have to get to the bottom. What does that mean to be godly? What is godliness? Because whatever it actually means, get this now, whatever godliness actually means, it is the power that severs the root of coveting and greed. So what does it mean to be godly? And very simply, to be godly means to be like God. To love with unwavering passion. What God himself loves with unwavering passion. And what God loves with unwavering passion is his own glory. Radiant and supreme, displayed through his son, and savored in the hearts of his people. That's what it means to be godly. That's what God loves. And you see, here's the thing. When you love God's glory, that is, when you love it, when God is displayed for the treasure that he is, that is as much like God as you can possibly get. But you notice, you notice, 
Paul qualifies this godliness. He says that it is godliness with contentment. Godliness with contentment. What is he saying? He's not saying that there is a way to be godly and not content. There's no such thing as being godly and being discontent. They are intertwined. They are inseparable. And what he means is, listen very carefully, what he means is that the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. In other words, Paul is saying that true godliness is satisfied. Always content in satisfied in God alone. That is contentment. That doesn't mean that God is the only thing we need. But it does mean that there is nothing outside of God that truly satisfies the human soul. And so do, do you see it? Do you see Paul's logic lurking here in the text? Look at the logic. The logic is being satisfied with the glory of God is how we sever the root of coveting and greed. That's the logic. To put it another way, the more staggered we are by the beauty and supremacy of God, the more we are freed from greed and the magnet of materialism. Which means the loaded question of the day is, are you godly? Which means what I'm asking is, are you content? Which means what I'm really asking is, is the glory of God your deepest passion and pursuit and priority and pleasure? Is it your highest aim and ambition in life to climb the towering heights of the majesty of God from the pages of Holy Scripture? Because it should be, it just has to be. Why? Because the more our hearts are taken with God, you understand, the less our hearts will be taken with gold. We need to face the facts this morning. And the facts are only when ravished by the worth and beauty of the living God from the Bible can we pry our fingers off the counterfeit treasures of the world. But follow Paul's logic in verse 7. Look at what he, look what he supplies. He, pl- he supplies the proof for why just being godly, just, just being godly is enough to make us happy. Look what he says. For, notice the argument, the logic, for we brought nothing into the world, we are not able to bring anything out of it either. And do you feel the force of his logic here? The very fact that we came into the world with nothing and leave with nothing tells us very simply that material goods are not the key to our existence. They're not the secret to satisfaction. You see, we break even in this life. We arrive at zero. We leave at zero. And as the old adage tells us, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And what that is, you understand, is code. What that is, is a built-in reminder from God himself that level of income and level of joy, get this, are completely unrelated. And yes, I heard the insanely cute baby too. Level of joy, level of income are completely unrelated. And, and, And I know we say we believe that, but do we actually live that? And don't misunderstand, it's not wrong to get a raise. It's not wrong to ask for a raise. I'll even say it's not wrong 
to buy non-essential luxuries to enjoy. Nor is it inherently righteous to be poor or to take a vow of poverty. In fact, that's not Paul's point even in the least. Rather, the point is, the point is, here it is, we can and must be content even with the bare minimum for survival precisely because God himself is enough. Which is exactly what he says in verse 8. Look at the text. We brought nothing into the world. We cannot bring anything out of it either. Here it is. But having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. It's the bare minimum. He picks those things as representative of the bare minimum things that we need to survive. And I'm sure you know this, but there's a growing movement in the world called minimalism. Right, that non-Christians, people out there in the world, that, that secular mental health experts have this growing concern that people assign way too much value to their money. They work way too hard to find ultimate significance in what they possess. People are waking to the reality that one of the fundamental errors that people make in their lives is that they equate more possessions with more joy, which isn't true at all. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that non-Christians who hate Christ, that they're waking to the reality that trying to find your deepest pleasure in what you possess is a zero-sum game that brings ruin and misery to the soul. And therefore, therefore, more and more people are becoming minimalist, which very simply means people are selling and getting rid of stuff and trying to live on less so that they can live their life for what is best. Whatever, the, whatever that is for you, they say. And I suppose they're on to something. And it's a point well taken. But it doesn't go nearly far enough, does it? Because what Paul is advocating for is not merely minimalism, but for what I call doxological minimalism. Doxological minimalism. What does that even mean? Doxological means glory. Min minimalism means minimal. In other words, get this, the only way to be content with the bare minimum for survival, like food and clothing, Paul says, is if we are godly and content, which means we love the glory of God more than anything in the universe. There's the secret. In other words, only when we are satisfied by the matchless, transcendent, exhilarating, captivating glory of the living God can we be content with the absolute minimum. Because don't you see, to have or not have is not the question. Rather, the question is the Lord can give, the Lord can take away, and in the end, not a thing changes about your joy. Why? Because your deepest joy is found in the glory of God, not in the glitter of gold. So the question is, can you do it? Can I do it? Can, can we do doxological minimalism? Can we be doxological minimalists? Not that we have to sell everything we own. Not that we have to take a vow of poverty and live in a tent somewhere. That's not what Paul's point is at all. But the point is that if we had to, 
if we had to, God would be enough. That we could be content with the bare minimum for survival precisely because we are supremely satisfied in the glory of God. That we don't need the upgrade to be happy. That there isn't anything outside of God that supplies a joy that he cannot. Don't you see, the more glory you see of who God is, the more liberation you experience from the greed that entices you. Put it this way, the power to be content and to resist the lie of the American dream is only as strong as our view of God is deep. And so what that means is in full scuba gear, every single morning, I beg you to daily plunge yourself into the depths of God's word. Drinking, drinking, drinking from the ocean of God's revelation because the logic is the more happy in God you become, the more content you will be. That's the logic. Which brings us to the second part of the strategy. To guard against greed and liberate generosity, number two, you must be aware of the dangers of the love of money. You must be aware of the dangers of the love of money because I don't know if you know this or not, but there's actually a lot riding on us being content. Like maybe even where we spend eternity. Look what Paul says in verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich, Paul says fall into temptation and a snare. And many foolish and harmful lusts which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all the evils, and some by longing for it, get this, wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know, they are probably the biggest warnings about the plutonium-like nature of money and riches and wealth, which Paul, by obligation, has to talk about. He just, he just has to. Why? Because the same plutonium that lights up a city is the same plutonium that destroyed Nagasaki. That's why. And no, it's true, money is not inherently sinful. But it is inherently lethal when used incorrectly. And how you use it incorrectly, get this now, is when you want it way too badly. Look at verse 9. Now those, or but those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation and a snare. That's very interesting, because you can tell that those who desire to be rich, that that's the opposite of contentment, right? That's the complete opposite direction of godliness with contentment, which means logically, logically, the craving to be wealthy means at its very root that you do not believe that God alone satisfies the soul, that you believe that there is something in addition to or outside of God that provides a pleasure that he cannot. And that word desire to be wealthy, that's an interesting choice, isn't it? Because notice that it doesn't say those who are wealthy are in danger. It doesn't even say those who just try to be wealthy are in danger. It says those who desire to be wealthy 
are in danger. Get this, whether they actually get wealthy or not. That's crazy. That's crazy because, because there has never been a disease in history that was so contagious that just thinking about that disease made you catch that disease, right? Much though the media tried to make it sound like that just thinking about COVID would make you catch COVID, there's no disease in history that just thinking about it makes you catch that disease. The disease of the love of money, however, is a different story. Just thinking about becoming wealthy, just desiring to be wealthy, Paul says whether you actually get wealthy or not, has the fearful power to plunge men into ruin and destruction where they will go to hell forever and ever and ever. This is rattling, Paul. This, this scares us, Paul, which is good because he wants us to wake up and smell the plutonium. There's two questions here that we have got to get to the bottom of. Two questions. Number one, what does it mean and look like to desire to be rich? What does that mean? What does that look like? And number two, number two, what happens to us if we don't catch this in time? In other words, what does desiring to be rich lead to if not repented of, crucified, and killed? Those are the questions. And so question number one, what does it look like and mean to desire to be rich? What does that look like? Well, the answer is it probably just depends. It's probably different for every person, case-by-case case basis. But clearly, clearly, Paul is talking about something beyond the appropriate desire to make a little more money so that you can pay the bills and support the family. Right? That that's not what he's talking about. Clearly, Paul's not talking about someone who, who wants to be generous, who wants more to give away what God provides. That's not what Paul's talking about, is it? which means Paul's talking about a perverted craving in the soul for wealth and luxury and security, isn't he? Paul means a person who wants a particular kind of lifestyle, a particular kind of status in life. He means a stingy, tight-fisted, hoarder, Ebenezer Scrooge kind of person who always schemes and dreams about how to make more money and all the things they're going to buy when the money starts rolling in. He means the envious person who covets and craves the comforts that other people have and they think they deserve. This is the person who obsesses over money and who would gladly skip church or any other sort of priority in their life if a second if it meant they could make more money or take another shift. The question is, do you see any of that in your life? Or in the life of someone you love? Do you desire to be rich, in other words? It doesn't mean you can't be rich. It doesn't mean it's wrong to be rich at all. Paul is simply saying that the longing for riches and wealth unlocks a box in the human heart that unleashes a power that you definitely do not want to be unleashed. Which leads us to the second question. What happens to us if we don't catch this in time? In other words, what does desiring to be rich lead to if not repented of, crucified, and killed? And Paul tells us precisely what it is. And there are few words in the Bible more chilling than these. Verse 9. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. And many foolish and harmful lusts which plunge men into ruin and destruction. I mean, do you, do you see the, 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 the stages, the three stages to destruction that Paul describes? There's three stages to destruction, destruction in that text. Stage one, desire to be wealthy, longing to be rich. Stage two, what, le- what that leads to, what desiring to be wealthy leads to, notice, is falling into temptation and a snare. What he means is just wanting to be wealthy. Just desiring to be rich makes you put yourself in vulnerable situations in which you will be tempted and enticed. In other words, if you desire to be rich, you're going to put yourself in situations in which you are going to be tempted to compromise. And according to Paul, in those situations, you will compromise because he says that if you want wealth, you will fall into a snare, a trap. In other words, a brutal cycle of pleasure that's just too good to let go of. Like the way they catch monkeys down in South America. You seen this? Apparently there's a monkey market down there. But you cut a hole in a coconut, you put a nut inside, the monkey can get his hand into the coconut, but he can't get it out when he has the monkey, the monkey, the monkey has the monkey in his hand, the monkey has the nut in his hand, he can't get his hand out. He really wants to let go. He really wants to get free, but just not bad enough to let go of the nut to which he clings. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. And if you go down that road of longing for wealth, sooner or later, you will put yourself in situations from which there is no escape. And the worst part of all is you won't want to. The third stage to destruction is that those who desire to be wealthy, notice, notice what he says, verse 9, fall into many foolish and harmful lusts which plunge men into ruin and destruction. That was loaded, wasn't it? Lusts. Many lusts. Many foolish lusts. Many foolish and harmful lusts. What does Paul mean? And to be totally honest, this, this kind of freaks me out a little bit. It's kind of disturbed me just a little bit because when Paul talks about these lusts and desires, get this, they are lusts and desires that are awakened from the inside out. Meaning, these are already in us. They don't come from without. They're already there. Lying dormant in the soul like some hibernating monster. But then they are awakened and aroused by desiring to be rich. And then from the inside out, they grow and they consume and destroy. And you know it's true because you've seen it. Either on a show or a movie or someone in actual life. This is true. Even the world knows. Which means we carry within us the power to our own destruction. Which is exactly what Paul says will happen if we don't catch them in time. Look at the end of verse 9. These lusts awakened by greed, Paul says, plunge men into ruin and destruction. That word plunge is used in the ancient Greek world to describe the sinking of ships. The destruction of Sparta. 
and the drowning of men in the sea. This is not the word you use when you do a cannonball into a pool. This is the word that you reserve when you're talking about tragedy, the sinking of the Titanic, the drowning of children. I notice that these lusts, these plunge people not into rivers or lakes, but into what? Into ruin and destruction. What does Paul mean? He means God's eternal wrath and judgment forever. What is he saying? And you can totally tell. You can totally tell. Love of money can, does, and will send people to hell forever. That doesn't mean that truly saved people go to hell. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that the way truly saved people persevere to the end and not crash their lives on love for money is precisely through obedience to warnings like this. Which is, which is why we have to be vigilant and violent even our, over our own hearts, don't we? When it comes to money. We need to control our thought lives and what we think about, don't we? When it comes to money, we should never assume the best about our own hearts as if our motives are pure and there's no need to, to worry. No, there is a need to worry. And we are the reason. We need to be very prayerful and wise and get wise counsel before taking a second job, additional income, taking a better paying job that might pull us away from the local church. I would even say we need to be very careful about, how to, about reading books on how to make more money. I'm not saying you shouldn't read them. I'm not saying you shouldn't get a better job. I'm not saying you shouldn't get a higher paying job. I'm not saying you shouldn't make more money. I'm not saying any of that. I'm simply saying that what starts off as innocent and even well-intentioned can quickly mutate into something that will eat you alive from the inside out. The question is why? What is it exactly about money that makes wanting more of it so hazardous to the soul? Paul tells us exactly what that is. Look at verse 10. Probably the most famous, should I say, infamous, infamous verse in the Bible about the love of money. Look what he says. The reason why wanting to get rich plunges men into ruin and destruction is because the love of money is a root, literally, of all the evils and some by longing for it wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Money poses no threat to the soul until it threatens God's place as the treasure of the soul. Which is exactly what the love of money is, isn't it? See, the love of money means that you have faith in money, that you believe that it has possibilities Promises of what it can do. To love money means to be infatuated with its power. Captivated by its potential. Mesmerized by its beauty. Persuaded by its claims to satisfy. And unfortunately, the King James has muddied the waters on this with their translation. 
The King James says the love of money is the root of all evil. Remember that? The love of money is the root of all evil. But what the Greek actually says is the love of money is a root of all the evils. Plural. A root of all the evils. Meaning what? Meaning it's not the only root to all the evils. But... 99 times out of 100, the evil, wicked things you see unfolding in the world and in people's lives began precisely because somewhere along the way, they fell in love with money. In other words, with cool, terrifying logic, hear this now. Paul's pointing out the reality that the love of money, when it takes a hold of a person's life, spreads to other parts of the soul, which reveals itself in issues that seem completely unrelated. Isn't that interesting? And the seemingly unrelated symptoms of the love of money shows up in things like lust and adultery and anger and pride, and arrogance, and deception, and oppression, and violence, and hunger for power, and divorce, and government control. You name it. It doesn't seem like it's connected to the love of money, but that's where it began. That's where it began. Because at the end of the day, greed is the gateway sin that leads to all the other sins of which our sinful hearts are capable. The question is, do you see any symptoms of the love of money in your lives? Do you have faith in money's power? Are you captivated by its potential? Mesmerized by its beauty? Persuaded by its claims to satisfy? Let me get a little personal. Do you frequently have financial fantasies playing out in your minds of all the things you're going to buy when more extra money starts rolling in? Ask the question this way, are you living as though heaven were your home or are you trying to make earth your heaven? Take an honest to God look. How, what does your spending and your giving reveal about what it is you love and live for the most? Because with a trembling lip and a quivering voice, look what Paul says at the end of verse 10. He says, some, some by longing for money, wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Think about what he said. They wandered away from the faith. Paul watched with his own eyes. People walk away from Jesus Christ in their zombie-like state to gorge themselves on greed and the love of money. It doesn't mean they lost their salvation. It's that they never had it to begin with, but it sure looked like they did at the time. And eventually they walked away from the faith because the black hole of greed and riches sucked them in and crushed them into non-existence. And you understand, you, you understand why these warnings are here, right? The reason why these kinds of warnings are in the Bible is because warnings against apostasy keep us from committing apostasy. Did you know that? 
It's true. It's one of, the God, one of the means God uses to keep us from tanking our faith. And so the question becomes, how then do we keep ourselves from the love of money? It sounds like it's a pretty big deal, and it is an infinitely big deal. How do we steer clear of greed and the love of money? That's exactly what Paul tells us. Part three of the strategy. Number three, you must wield the weapons against the love of money. You must wield the weapons against the love of money because the thing about plutonium is that it can be used for good. It can kill you, but only if you use it for something that it was not intended to do, and that's exactly the same as money. You see, money rightly applied, money rightly applied can be used to advance God's plan, be an instrument of love for God's people, and it can even be used to increase your joy forever. How's that? Skip down to verses 17 through 19. Paul says, to the rich, to the wealthy in the present age, command them to not be conceited about money, nor to have hoped on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly supplies all things to enjoy. Command them to be, to do good for others, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to share what is their own. Notice which results in treasuring for themselves, storing up a treasure of a good foundation for that which is to come in order that they should take hold of that which is life indeed. That's interesting. Radically different tone. Radically different focus. And you notice I skipped verses 11 through 16. And the thing about verses 11 through 16 is they don't say a single solitary word about money, riches, or greed, or anything. Not a single word. Not one thing about riches and greed. But now here in verses 17 through 19, he comes back to the issue of money. And that seems kind of messy and random and disconnected and scatterbrained, but it's not. Sure, let me assure you that what Paul's doing here is profound and glorious. Because get this, what Paul loads between the two field goals of money and wealth is the foundational theological firepower that severs the savage root of coveting and greed. Does that make sense? What he says in between the two texts about money is what cures the love of money. And since I have minutes, not hours, I can do a little more than read the text. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, but you, O man of God... Instead of loving money, in fact, the exact opposite of that, flee from these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. I mean, you can just hear the urgency in his voice. Be godly, pursue righteousness. Instead of getting as close to the edge as you can without falling, run the other way. Flee from these things, man of God. And notice, notice, fight the good fight of faith. Don't you see? This is war. This is war. Instead of being pulled downstream by the current of consumerism, we are to take hold of eternal life, which is just another way of saying keep our eyes on the prize and treasure in the life to come. And, you know, people assume, don't they? People just sort of assume that the Christian life is one of moderation. Christian life is one of balance, one of morality. 
Christianity is a life of self-control, it's a life of temperance, a life of restraint and self-denial, right? And in many ways that is true, but what it really is is something way more extreme and radical. Look what Paul says in verses 13 and 14. He says, I charge you, Timothy, before God, who gives life to all things, and Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession to Pontius Pilate, that you would keep the commandment without stain and without reproach until the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does he mean? What what commandment is he talking about? He means the commandment he just said, which is to lay hold of eternal life. And he says, to keep that commandment, keep the commandment to take hold of eternal life, do that without stain and without reproach. What is he doing? What is he even talking about? What is the point? The point is, listen very carefully, the point is the biblical alternative to a life of materialistic self-indulgence is not a vow of poverty. Nor is it even middle class. In fact, financial status has nothing to do with it. Rather, the biblical alternative to self-indulgent greed, here it is, is a life of staggering moral glory and irreproachable holiness. That's the alternative to riches and greed. The question is, does that sound familiar? What I mean is, Are you pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness? Are you fighting the good fight of faith, taking hold of eternal life? Because you have to understand here, this is the Christian life. We're not moralists. There's no balance here. There's no moderation here. We're not ascetics. We're not minimalists. What we are are theologians. What we are are worshipers which is why Paul says what he does in verses 15 and 16. Look at the text, be amazed. Paul just said that God in his own time would reveal Christ, would bring Christ, but speaking of God, the question is, who is he? What is God like? How do you use finite words to describe the infinite? Here's how you do it. Paul says, God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the only one who possesses immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see, to him be the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. What is Paul doing? What is the point of this? The point is that this theological outburst here in the context of money is how we fight coveting and greed in our lives at the deepest possible level. Do you see? That's why it's here. Because the matchless glory of God is how we fight coveting and greed. That's why it's here. Should we be captivated by the splendor and majesty of God, the hollow glow of greed and gold loses its deceptive appeal to not love gold more than God. We need a gargantuan vision of the glory of God from the pages of Holy Scripture, which is exactly what Paul gives us. Notice, notice he is the blessed and only sovereign. Literally, happy and only sovereign. Meaning, 
He rules the universe with absolute ease, and he is infinitely happy as he does so. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the matchless king of infinite authority with absolute, dis- absolute undisputed dominion over every king and ruler and tyrant and president in history. He alone has immortality. He alone is infinite, eternal, uncaused, uncreated. He dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has seen nor can see. What a statement to make about God. What does it mean? It means that in our current state, no one can look upon the sovereign atomic splendor of God without being incinerated. You think about it, the sun can burn out your eyeballs from 93 million miles away and we think we're going to casually stroll into the presence of our creator. I don't think so. Not without Christ, we're not. And again, the point of all this, the point of all this is that to slay the giant of greed and coveting, we need something more than to freeze our credit cards in an ice block. Did you ever hear that? One of the things you should do is to freeze your credit cards in an ice block. This is lost on you, I can tell. Never mind. That we need something more than some nifty budgeting system or envelopes in which to put our cash. No, what we need is to think deep and long about the majesty of the living God because when we do that, then we can keep the commands that Paul gives in 17 through 19. And by the way, here we go. I finished this morning with six countermeasures because that's what Paul gives us, six countermeasures against greed and coveting and the love of money, six countermeasures that free us from greed to use plutonium in a way that puts Christ on display. Here they are. They're in your notes. They're going to go fast. Countermeasure number one, do not be conceited. Do not be conceited, Paul says. Look at verse 17. To the rich now in the present age, command them not to be conceited, i.e. about money. And maybe you're thinking, well, gotcha, Paul. I'm neither rich nor am I wealthy, so this doesn't apply to me. I have nothing to be conceited about. And the reality is you are. Not arrogant, but you are rich. In the history of the world, by the standard of the world, we are all rich. We are what you might even call filthy rich. And even if you're not, this still applies to you. And number one on the list is do not be arrogant or conceited about money. What that means is meaning don't think for a second that just because you have money that A, you deserve it, B, God didn't give it to you, C, that it makes you better than anyone else, or D, that it actually belongs to you. (laughs) Because it doesn't. We are but stewards, and every penny owned is a penny loaned by God to be used for his glory. The question is this morning, are you arrogant and conceited about wealth? Countermeasure number two. Do not hope in riches, but God alone. Do not hope in riches, but God alone. Verse 17. He says, do not hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly supplies us everything to enjoy. Isn't that interesting? He says, riches are uncertain. Riches are uncertain. He says, what does that mean? It means riches were never intended by God to bear the weight of our hope. 
They were never designed to be that in which we find ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction because the only sure thing in life is a sovereign God who governs everything that comes to pass. And so the question is, are you hoping in God alone this morning and not in wealth? Countermeasure number three, do what brings benefit to others. Do what brings benefit to others. Verse 18 literally says, do that which is good for others. Do that which brings benefit, profit, and pleasure to the lives of other people. That's what rich people like us are supposed to do, he says. And don't you see, every act of generosity and care for other people is another arrow lodged into the heart of coveting and greed, isn't it? Acts of love and mercy keep down the fever of coveting and greed. And so the question is, do you live for the benefit of other people, and in particular, the people in this church? Countermeasure number four. Verse 18, Paul says, be rich in good works. Be rich in good works. Because if countermeasure number three described the quantity, this describes, no, if countermeasure number three described the quality, this describes the quantity. The quantity. Because you understand your life is a lottery. Did you know that? You are a living lottery. You are a living slot machine that should someone need to pull the handle, everyone would be a winner. I used a gambling analogy. I'm, I, I'm really getting good at this here. Okay, so the, the, the point is, what's the point? The point is... You can always be counted on to be lavish with love and generosity with other people who are in need. Anytime they need to pull the handle, as it were, you're there. You're there, rich in good works, overflowing with generosity. The question is, are you a lottery lavish with love and generosity for other people, and in particular, the people in this very church? Countermeasure number five, verse 18 again, Paul simply says, be generous. Be generous. Interesting thing about that word, be generous, you metadatus. and the Greek, it literally means good at giving. That's very interesting. Gen to be generous means you are good at giving to other people. And what Paul means by good is not out of duty or out, out of obligation, but rather glad-hearted, affectionate, cheerful generosity that does not look for payback or favors returned. I ask you this morning, are you, you metadatus? Are you good at giving to other people? Finally, countermeasure number six. We're almost done. End of verse 18, Paul says, be ready to share what is your own. Be ready to share what is your own. And think about that phrase, ready to share. What does that imply? It implies that everything in our lives and everything that we own, get this now, is a redistribution center of sovereign grace. That everything we've earned, everything we've paid for, Everything that legally belongs to us is to be held in a constant holding pattern of selfless generosity. Meaning it all exists to be given and shared with anyone in need. And so I ask you this morning, is your life a redistribution center of sovereign grace? Is everything you own held up in a holding pattern of selfless generosity? 
Because notice, notice what Paul says in verse 19. What frees us for such selfless generosity, and I am honest, I close with this. Notice what Paul says in verse 19, frees us for radical generosity. All this giving, all this sharing, all this generosity, verse 19, stores up the treasures of a good foundation for the life to come. Do you see what this is? This is the divine incentive program for generosity. This is eternal return upon investment. What Paul just said here, though few are willing to believe it, is that God himself will personally reward us in the age to come for every act of generosity that we make. That's what he said. That how you use what God provides in this life produces eternal treasure and reward in the next. That we give what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. That we store up eternal treasures in the coming age by giving away temporary treasures in the present age. That's in the Bible. That is in the Bible. And what that does, you understand, is that it liberates liberality. It generates generosity. It unleashes a kind of love, sacrificial love and affection that puts the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ on display to the world. In other words, what that is, you understand, is kingdom generosity, kingdom economics. Lord, you, for whatever reason, have hardwired money, riches, finances, capital, gain. You've wired that into the plan, and it's not inherently sinful, Lord, and you do not provide it so that it would be a, a, a temptation to idolatry. It is that for us, but that is not its intention, O oh Lord, and we understand that. Lord, we see that we are to be conduits of grace and not cul-de-sacs of greed. We ask you, Lord, we ask you that we would be so ravished and captivated by your glory that you would help us to so see who you are from the text, O oh Lord, that it would liberate a kind of liberality and generosity, that you would help us to pry our fingers off the things to which we cling, and that you would help us to use finances in a way, use what you have given to us in such a way that would put your worth and value and beauty on open display to the watching world. Thank you for this time in the series and investing our time in such glory and beauty from the text. May our lives be changed always and only for the glory of your son. And it's in his name we pray.